This is Digital Health Today, episode 19. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible.com. Audible is offering a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Again, that's digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free for your free audiobook. Hello and welcome back to Digital Health Today. I'm glad you're here and thanks for being a part of the digital health community. If you haven't done it yet, head over to our website and officially join the digital health community. You can find the links on every page on the website or go directly to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join. It's free to do, and I look forward to welcoming you to this growing global community. I also invite you to subscribe to and rate our podcast. The way that Apple rates shows like these is based partially on downloads, but it's also based on positive feedback from listeners. So I'd really appreciate your review on Apple. Now, you may need a little help on how to do this. So if you need some tips on how to review on Apple, just click the support tab at the footer of every page of the website, and that will take you to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash support, where we have a little tutorial on how to find and rate the show from your iPhone or iPad. My guest today is Dr. Shafi Ahmed. He's a colorectal surgeon in London, practicing in the NHS at St. Bart's, as well as several private hospitals. He's also a director and non-executive director of several organizations, a member of the faculty at Exponential Medicine at Singularity University, an associate dean at Bart's in the London Medical School, a council member at the Royal College of Surgeons, and a futurist, innovator, and tech entrepreneur. And I probably missed out a few things along that introduction. You may have seen the coverage of Dr. Ahmed's virtual reality surgery, which he performed and streamed live in April 2016. He's going to tell us more about that and how he's using virtual reality and augmented reality to teach surgery and accelerate the training of surgeons around the world. We also talk about how the role of surgeons will change with the advent of augmented and artificial intelligence, robotics, and what Dr. Ahmed calls the surgical singularity. You won't want to miss this episode. As always, you can grab all the links, videos, and more in the show notes. Just visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 19. Now let's tune into the conversation with Dr. Shafi Ahmed. Dr. Ahmed, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Ahmed, I gave the listeners a little background. Can you share a little bit more about your work and where it is that you spend most of your time? Okay, so essentially I am a colorectal surgeon and I specialize in cancer work. Also, I'm a teacher, an educator, and I'm an associate dean at a medical school at Bart's at the London Medical School. I uh, teach medical students for the last 20 years. And I'm also involved in innovation and working on how we teach people in a different way using wearable technology and how we connect people around the world and how we improve healthcare by connecting people. And your work involves both augmented reality and virtual reality. So just to make it very clear at the beginning of this podcast, can you give a little bit of an overview of each of those technologies and how they fit into your vision of surgical training? Of course. So augmented reality is, for example, uh, something like Google Glass, which had a huge amount of uh, interest uh, a few years ago. And uh, more latterly, it's the Snapchat spectacles. Both allow you to see in front of your eyes with a glass, but actually augment that vision with overlays, with information, uh, similar to having a heads-up display in a car, for example. That's augmented reality. Virtual reality is when you wear a headset and you're immersed in a different world. That can be either a 360 video or it could be CGI graphics. But you can't see beyond that and you're immersed in this different environment, if you like, which is virtual reality. 
And actually, the latest one, of course, is something called Mixed Reality, which is a combination of both of them, which is very exciting. And in terms of where you are now, I mean, you're, you're a colorectal surgeon. There's a huge amount of training to get to that level of uh, expertise and practice. You're also teaching. You're involved in a lot of different companies. Give me a little bit of insight, if you will, about how that passion formed, about why you wanted to get into medicine and how you wanted to then disrupt medicine through some of the interests that you have in technology and teaching. Yeah, so medicine, I, I guess, when I was 18, I decided that was a career that had the most interest for me. So I entered medicine and qualified as a doctor, of course. I kept sort of um, thinking what's around me. I, I quite liked teaching, liked sharing knowledge base. I kept asking myself the question, why is it that we've been teaching and training the same way? A lot of it is inefficient. A lot of it, it's one-to-one or one-to-two people. Um, and you're not really utilizing your knowledge and know-how to the wider community. As you get more senior, of course, you've been, and you've trained excessively many hours, many days, many weeks over the course of many years. And it, it's something like surgeons train for over 36,000 hours in my time uh, to become competent and a specialist, which is a long training pathway. It took me about 12 or 13 years before achieving my uh, consultant role at the hospital, for example. So if you think about teaching and training, my view was that can we make it more efficient? Can we reduce the time to train? Can we make it more interesting and adapt conventional methods and use AR and VR as a way and as a mechanism of delivering teaching in a different way? Because our students nowadays, be they're younger, they're fresher, they're into social media, into latest technology. How do we utilize these technologies to reach them in a different way? And for me, both AR and VR are just a natural extension of those ideas and their platforms to deliver teaching in a different way. The other key message, of course, is that, look, individually, I can teach a few people, and that's great, very rewarding. But how can I reach out to people that really need the skill sets that we can't offer them? For for example, people in the lower and uh, middle-income countries in Africa and Asia that we all think we need to help. Actually, they're all connected, or they will be connected. The smartphone is ubiquitous. Apps are pretty easily downloadable. Suddenly, you can connect with many more people, and your knowledge base and your education can reach people in many more parts of the of the world. There's one the sort of uh, quote that comes to me. One of my Twitter followers told me a while ago. It was this. He said, "To reach people where few people can reach, we need to teach in a way that few people can teach." And that, for me, really sort of sums up what I'm trying to achieve. There are 14 recognized surgical specialties, according to the American College of Surgeons, about 10, I think, in the Royal College of Surgeons and another dozen subspecialties, thousands of types of operations and ways of performing operations around the world. Is there a specific area of medicine or of surgery specifically that you're focusing on or that, that you think is particularly optimal for being able to use new techniques for training and teaching? Okay, I think there's, there's two things. One is about existing techniques and gold standards across the globe. And the other is newer, more modern techniques. And they're two completely separate issues, Down for me. If I think about what we're trying to achieve in terms of global health, which is my big vision and, I guess, my passion in training people, no, about, about a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, the Lancet Commission for Global Health first produced this report on the inequality of surgery around the world. And it stated categorically that 5 billion people out of a population of 7 billion, that's two-thirds of the population, Dan, do not have access to safe and affordable surgery. And these are simple operations, for example, appendicectomies, uh, cesarean sections, 
and management of orthopedic injuries, fractures, for example, things that will save lives and improve people's function so they can contribute to, to life and the economy, for example. So we're not talking about new operations using robots, for example, these stand operations around the globe. Now, to make the healthcare more equitable in that sense, that means we need to train about 2 million extra surgeons and somehow provide resources to perform about 150 million operations per year. That's the sums. That's the problem we have globally. So my view is how do you provide solutions? Yes, you can throw more money at these things. As always, that's probably necessary. You can reach out, train people better, more efficiently, and in vast numbers. And that's my message. If you create this workforce to make healthcare more equitable, which is what we all believe in individually, that's I think we all have a, a sense of belonging to the world and creating some sort of equality, then that's how we have to go chain things around. So that's the bigger vision I have. And that's where the tech comes into it, in my opinion. So when we look back a few hundred years and we see surgery in recent history, fairly recent history, being done without anesthesia, without sterile techniques, you know, we look back at that and we think it was quite a cruel standard and a barbaric time to be alive and, and certainly one that I'm thankful we don't have to endure. And one could expect that people in the future will do the same when they look back on this period, when they look at the way that we're practicing medicine. And how long do you think it's going to take that sort of transformation healthcare to come into practice where people will look back on even this period in the, early, you know, the late 20 teens to, to think that, gosh, glad we don't, didn't live way back then. <laughs> That's really interesting. And I, I guess healthcare is moving so rapidly. And we're, as you know, we're, we're part of this exponential medicine curve, if you like. Uh, Ray Kurzweil uh, summed it up a long while ago when he talked about singularity, about the point at which, I guess, human behavior may be overcome or equaled by computing power. So that's the division that people have going forward, which I aspire to, and I agree with that at some point. So I think the things that are going to change rapidly in healthcare as a whole and surgery, one is going to be the artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence pathway, where your first doctor that you meet will be an AI machine, an algorithm to give you a diagnosis and help you with a prescription immediately. That's going to happen fairly quickly. And some specialties like radiology, for example, and dermatology can be easily transformed by uh, quality deep, uh, deep machine learning. And that's happening as we speak. It won't take too long before we see that in the realms of clinical practice. Surgery itself is slightly different, of course. It's about the uh, technical expertise. It's about performing an operation. It's about making a diagnosis. It's about doing the right thing at the right time. But even technically, a lot of our operations, if you break them down to component parts, could be facilitated by by the robotics or intelligent machines that could support you. At what point will we disappear or will our robot be able to do an operation is anybody's guess. But it'll happen at some stage, the next 20, 30 years, for example. And remember, robots and things are becoming cheaper as we speak. There are many more companies producing robots and machines that will help us. And as they become cheaper and more affordable, you can see that within the next 10, 20 years that we'll be relying on less on our own clinical skills, but more on the AI devices, machines, and other things that will augment clinical practice. Doctors themselves and surgeons will have to redefine their roles. And I think we're a pretty clever bunch. We'll have to just figure it out about what our role will be in the future. That's the example I think in the future is going to happen. That may not happen for 10, 20 years, uh, given the current circumstances. But each, each year or every other year, for example, are all these technologies being driven, improving our own quality of care and standards. And so I, I'm quite excited by the next five, 10 years of, of surgical development. 
I'm glad that you didn't say 50 years. I, I'm happy to look at the 10-year the horizon, 10 to 20 years for <laughs> some of these things that come into, come into effect. But there's a huge industry behind this. I mean, there, there is, there's a reason that things take so long to get into clinical practice. Yeah. That Many of them are very, very good reasons I mean, in terms of evidence and studies and trying to make yeah. sure that we're keeping people safe. So in order to try to bring some of these things to market, we're really going to need to rethink the whole structure. And that's why I, I'm fascinated by your work, given that you're so involved in the training aspect of it, because really there's whole systems and institutions and processes that we follow to get people to your level of expertise are, are going to need to be rethought in terms of how do we accelerate that and adapt that to the the new ways of working that are coming online over the next five, 10 years? So can you give me some some insight in terms of how you think they're going to need to change or how they're adapting or need to adapt so that they themselves don't become an obstacle to the progress that could otherwise be made? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things there. One is healthcare itself. Um, it can be a difficult machine to move along. Um, it can be sometimes like a large ship that's rudderless moving into the ocean, for example, trying to create some sort of path for itself. And technology does have a problem with that because obviously innovation and technology often happens in small pockets. It can be isolated with the early adopters and the innovators, for example. And the adoption uh, longitudinally and vertically can be a challenge, particularly in the NHS, where I work in the UK, for example. But things are moving along. You can see that innovation is being absorbed, it's changing much quicker, and I guess that will carry on becoming faster and faster in terms of adoption into the widestream clinical practice. I guess the other question you asked was about teaching and training, how that might change. And look, if you look at, uh, for example, AR and VR, I'm hoping, and I'm hopeful at least, that those platforms, particularly virtual reality, will accelerate learning or reduce the time to train. For example, if you manage to create a good learning experience in VR, it's been shown already that the learning is different and more deep in some ways, particularly when it comes to language recognition. So if you're learning, and if I'm going to an operating theatre as a trainee, as a medical student, it's a bit awe-inspiring when you first walk in. It's not about the points-of-view approach. We've been historically carried away with this points-of-view operation and practice. So for example, you're seeing what's seeing in front of you, only in front of you, with the technical part of the operation. If you go to YouTube, for example, there are millions of these operations you can see every day from that experience. But actually, in VR, you experience the entire brain theatre. It's about the team working. It's about what's happening around behind you with the anesthesiologist, with the uh, scrub nurse, with the team, and how they're interacting. And we forget about those softer skills of a surgeon, where you are part of a team, you're a leader, you're a mentor, you're part of a wider theatre team, and it's how you behave in that environment, which we never really train people on, which is just as important as almost a technical part of the operation. What people want to see, of course, is if things are going wrong, how you're dealing with it, what's happening to the patient, how you're communicating that information, and how you're dealing with that problem at hand. And that's the bit that I think VR will accelerate. And I think it will probably short training over the course of time if we get it right. I know you're involved in, in several different companies. You advise many companies, and I, I'm your co-founder of two, Virtual Medics and Medical Realities. Can you take each one of those and tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Virtual Medics is positioned on the website as a global medical school. How does it work, and what is it you're working on there? Okay, so this goes back a couple of years. Virtual Medics was set up by myself and some of my medical students at the time, and now who were qualified as junior doctors. So two years ago, back in 2014, uh, we uh, live streamed an operation using 
the Google Glass that had come out just prior to that live stream. We'd figured out that if we could get the Google Glass to stream a live operation, we managed to work on the, the software, the back end of the Glass to create a live streaming platform. We could then teach people using Google Glass. And that was my first, I guess, first mechanism of using these sort of wearable technologies. And in fact, that operation I performed, which was on a patient with cancer, for example, we live streamed around the globe. And this is back to what I was saying about before, about thinking about teaching not one-to-one, but one-to-many. In fact, on that particular day, and it got a huge amount of publicity around it, I managed to train effectively 14,000 people across the globe in 118 countries and in about over 2,000 cities. So suddenly, using a simple wearable device strapped to your head, that could stream on a 3G, 4G connection or Wi-Fi, suddenly reaching a lot of people. Suddenly, teaching and knowledge base became much more easily transferable using these smart technologies. So we did that. And then we went back and thought, okay, that's fine. How does that create into learning? So we created an online platform for surgery initially so that people could have the high standards of teaching in surgical uh, disciplines around the globe. Free at the point of access is a philanthropic aim that I have that we help everybody. If you look at medical schools around the world, they will have some form of e-learning. Most of it's not particularly good, not consistent across the world, and in pockets have some innovation. We want to raise that stand across the globe. So everyone, here's a free platform for you to learn surgery. So you all have the same learning, the same people around the world, and you don't have to be restricted by geography. You can be trained by people around the globe. So that's the, the message behind virtual medics. And we've just recently released the first global surgical curriculum, which has gone went out about a month ago. So we want to develop it constantly and go on to doing the other specialties going forward. But again, it's going to be free at the point of access. It's going to be a gold standard learning for any student around the world, which I think is what we're trying to achieve. It's this thing about democratizing education, making sure that education itself is a fundamental human right that we can, we can deliver. It wasn't that long ago, uh, about 10, 15 years ago, that I was working with Stryker and working with Dr. Butch Rosser yes. out in New York and helping him coordinate telesurgeries, which, you know, were very expensive. They required a lot of technology and connections and a lot of logistics to try to get them together. But he organized the Top Gun School. I'm not even sure if he's still doing that. But at the time, uh, he was doing uh, Top Gun for surgery, working to pair experts in, in, in surgery with people who needed to become experts in developing worlds. Yeah. That was not that long ago, and it has completely transformed. And what you're just describing here with Virtual Medics, and the website is virtualmedics.org. I'll make sure we include a link on the, the website to that, is actually taking it so much further in terms of making it accessible and free. So people can go to that website and sign up, become members, and begin to access this training today? So yes, anybody can access that website today, join, and, 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 and learn and get taught. What about the business model there? So that's all based around sponsorship and based around grants that we get for our work. And at the moment, it's self-sustaining for the next two to three years. But we're always looking, we're always looking for people who want to invest just for a philanthropic aim. It's a non-profit organization. Very sure that we keep delivering on that, on that agenda. So we'll be, we'll be constantly looking out for further grants and money that people can give us to carry on with this good work. You're also a co-founder of Medical Realities. Can you tell me what that business is working on and, and how that fits into your vision? Okay, so this is the virtual reality arm of my work. So the other part is more AR, this is VR. So about two years ago, we set up a company called Medical Realities to use virtual reality for training surgeons, essentially. 
And we actually recorded one of the very first 360 videos, live capture of an operation, back in January 2015, actually, which went onto the YouTube platform, which has just been released. It actually was shortlisted for one of the prizes at the Cannes Lion Festival as a new way of teaching training, for example. And we've been very much leading the way in working out how VR might be useful in this area. So myself and my colleague called Steve Dan, who is an ex-post-production film person, he's run his own company for the last 20, 30 years based out of Soho in London, based on film production, post-production, CGI, graphics, etc., with a team of animators and AR specialists. And we created this company thinking maybe we should be using VR to teach surgeons. So what we've got now, we're releasing our products in the first quarter of next year. We're recording operations. We then put them into a VR headset. We've got animation with CGI anatomy and graphics. We've got learning experience in that VR, in that VR world, if you like. And so the idea would then be, of course, is to uh, let people download the app on a mobile phone or on a tethered headset and be taught and have learning and teaching in the, in virtual reality. And so we're going to be producing about 100 operations in the next year, all relevant to global education and to let people learn in a different way. And that's what we're designing over the last two years. So that is medicalrealities.com. I know we're recording this interview in 2016, but just to be clear, then your product is coming online in quarter one of 2017, right? It is indeed, yes. And what's the, the sort of business model behind this? Are people going to be paying on a, a per month basis or is this something sponsors are also participating in? So we've got a lot of support from this. Obviously, we did the live virtuality operation earlier this year, uh, similar to Google Glass, where we did the first live stream of surgical operation back in April. And that was viewed by 55,000 people in uh, 140 countries and 4,000 cities and really took, I guess, captured the imagination of the world because it meant that we could connect people in VR or 360 video for a different learning experience. So our model is uh, uh, slightly different with this one. There'll be various types of models about uh, income generation, but also giving away a lot of the software free to parts world that need it on a cost-neutral basis. Yeah, so there'll be uh, sponsors around that to make sure that we um, make it available for free. There'll also be other high-end approach using the tethered head devices, like the Oculus Rift, for example, or the HTC Vive, which may be more of a model given out to universities and medical centers that might want to learn in virtual reality. What are some of the, the pieces of low-hanging fruit where this can be applied? We're, we're going to go across the board, not my own specialty. That's obviously one that I have interest in. But we've got to cover all the specialties, whether it's neurosurgery, plastic surgery, orthopedics, general surgery, and so forth. These are going to be stand operations that people need to do across the globe to raise the standard. And we'll pick about the most common operations that we think have most value and therefore the most penetration and most usefulness around the globe. I saw your 2015 presentation at Exponential Medicine. You shared the stage with Dr. Rafael Grossman, who also did a Google Glass surgery some years ago. You said in that talk that you wanted surgery to be automated, and you described that as surgery singularity. Can you explain what that means and, and how that is, is going to come into to practice? Yeah, okay. So that, I guess that's a bigger vision, I think. Obviously, I'm very much into technology and how it enhances human behavior and how it can replace part of the work that we do and augment our work going forward. So Ray Kurzweil, who's the, the director of engineering at Google and very much a visionary in this area, coined the term singularity uh, some years ago. I wrote the book called The Singularity is Near. 
And by what that he meant by 2030, he felt that computers with the power of technology and the sort of current exponential changes and transformation in computer power, we would be replaced in some ways by a computer. So that's what his vision was. So my view is to take that one thing further. If that's singularity for the average work, what about surgery? Is it particularly special? Could we, in fact, at one stage, replace surgeons with robot doctors or robot surgeons? And at what point will the public, patients, accept that sort of deal? And so my view, if, if you sort of look at what surgeons do, first of all, we're our initial diagnosis and clinical acumen is based around algorithms, Dan. We think about things in our lifetime, experiences we've had about patients and outcomes, and we make judgments based on that knowledge. That's why you appoint people that are senior who've experienced a lot of things in surgery. But actually, our lifespan is quite limited. We have, we have, we read so many journals, so many books, we read so many patients to create that algorithm. If you create a deep learning machine that can suddenly learn from the entire world literature in one go and all the experiences, suddenly you get a better understanding of what that might achieve going forward in terms of making diagnosis. The next part is the actual operation. Could you replace a surgeon to do an operation? That's interesting. I guess at some point you can. I gave a talk at Wired Health back in early summer, and I raised the issue just to see what the feedback was from the public and from the tech world about what they think about having surgeons being robots. I had a really interesting discussion, good debate about the ethics, the acceptance, the issues around confidentiality against governance, all the issues that you might think about. But we need to ask those questions today because it's going to happen over the course of the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, for example. And already there's machines have been produced that can join bow together autonomously, for example, as good as surgeons. And that's in very small cases, but they're coming out now as we speak. And over the next 5, 10 years, they'll be more and more familiar and more developed. So that's where we need to be heading towards. I, th- I think it'll just augment our work. And actually, if you think about the whole global picture, ultimately, if we get to a stage where we could have these robots or augmented devices to help us, suddenly it democratizes healthcare. It makes it easier, you can disrupt, and you can make healthcare more equitable from a surgical point of view. And people talk about this, oh, well, how would you ever accept a surgeon as a sort of as a robot surgeon? And I always give the same analogy. And the analogy is quite straightforward, of course, is that look at the vehicle that we drive every day. We jump into a car and we sort of put the ignition in, we turn the key, we put our foot down and we drive at 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. It's not a problem. We never have a question how that car was designed, the safety behind it. And most cars are built by robots, okay, virtually end to end with some checks in between. So actually, at some point, if we replicate that, at what point would we trust the machine to perform an operation, for example. So it's that analogy that we, we need to understand. And obviously, the big work around autonomous vehicles is driving some understanding around a world with autonomous things happening around us. And I think that's a good thing overall. But we need to be obviously careful and be involved in the whole process. Yeah, I, th- I really think that some of these concerns, while valid today, just really don't appreciate the acceleration that, that we're headed towards over the next 20 years and 50 years and 100 years. Because, you know, we look back in, into the recent history, 50, 100 years ago, surgery, equipment, our lifestyles, everything was so different than it is today. So 
Yes, it's, it's inconceivable now to have a, a robot surgeon, but I really think I agree with you that you know, as we go forward, we're going to see those things and we're just going to take them for granted and people will wonder, how could you ever trust a person to do that level of complex <laughs> surgery? <laughs> it'll, it'll, yeah. I'm not sure if I'll live to see it, but I, I, I'm confident my daughters will and uh, certainly <laughs> my grandchildren will. I'd like to ask six questions to every guest. Do you have some time to indulge me? Of course I do, yes. What is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? Okay, so I gave one earlier, which I think was a, was a good one, but I'd, I'd go further forward with that one. Often in my presentation, Dan, you've been there before, to some of them, I always leave one last line for the audience, and it's about the connecting people. So Peter Diamandis, I remember saying a few years ago, Exponential Medicine, that to make a billion dollars, you need to help a billion people, and these are the big global companies that can do that. But actually, I went one step further, and I said to help a billion people, you need to connect a billion minds. And that's been my message all along. What advice do you have for others who are working to innovate in healthcare? Okay, so I think, first, we have to be brave. You have to really think about the idea that you have, have a burning ambition and passion for that to make it work. But also, you must take a healthcare system with you. The problem, you have so many barriers to innovation that a lot of people just don't bother, or they think it's too difficult. If you engage with the healthcare system that you work in, for me, it's the NHS and my local hospital, and also engaging the patients, taking that patient on that journey with you. If you get a healthcare system and the patients with you on that journey, suddenly innovation becomes a lot easier. And you have to do that. It's hard work. You have to sometimes ask the right questions because it's innovation and disruption. But if you don't ask the questions, somebody else will. But it's the time that you've got to take that on, on, on your shoulders and to be brave in this new world. What book do you recommend to our listeners? I could talk about a lot of technology books and the future and everything else, but I thought I'd go back and talk about a book that I read when I was about, when was it, about 22, I think it was. I just finished medical school, and a book called A Suitable Boy came out, written by Vikram Seth, which won a big prize. It's a huge book of about 1,500 pages, but it's sort of all about life. It's about law, it's about poetry, romance, business, suspense, tragedy, poetry. It gives you everything based around the Indian partition in the 1950s. And ultimately, it's a love story, but it defines our whole generation of, of people. And actually, it transcends time. And it's a lovely book if you've got a few months, a few years to read it. A suitable boy. We'll have a link to that on uh, the show notes. So thanks very much for that recommendation. What tech, software, app, device, etc. do you use that you wouldn't want to live without? Well, I guess it's going to be the, a mobile phone. I use a Samsung S7 Edge. Uh, I quite like the Android system compared to the Apple uh, iOS. And that's been a great phone in the sense that Samsung themselves have been very key innovators in virtual reality with a Samsung Gear device, which plugs in beautifully, effortlessly, which would be great. The Oculus part of it comes alive. You can access the App Store and download virtual reality apps and, and um, sort of uh, modules. So with my work with VR, of course, that becomes relevant to me. And it's the only one at the moment that's been doing well for many years, although the new one, which is Google Pixel, which I want to get in the new year, I think will also be a great addition to that, to that fold. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, how or where would you invest it? It can be in a, a person, a technology, a business. Where would you invest that money? Uh, I'd, uh, I think the thing that's going to change and transform healthcare, Dan, is going to be uh, artificial or augmented intelligence, no question. It's going to be the backbone of healthcare in the next five years. But you won't see it 
it'd be in the background, working its magic, if you like, doing some deep machine learning to change the role of the doctor. So I think AI is the next big thing, but a lot of people just won't see it. It's just going to be working its magic as we're working in the healthcare system. And if I had $5 million tomorrow, I'd be investing in AI and healthcare. We're going to make a contribution to a charity in appreciation for your time here on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell us a little bit about what they do? So I sort of work with a charity in Bangladesh called the Vienna Bazaar Cancer Hospital. And they're trying to create the first cancer hospital in Bangladesh itself in a rural setting to help uh, diagnose cancer early and to offer treatment to a population that doesn't really have the opportunities to get that treatment. And I've been working with them for the past five years since its inception to see if they can create something unique in a country that requires uh, healthcare to be improved. You got it. That's Biani Bazaar Cancer Hospital Project. We'll have a link to them on the show notes. Thanks for nominating that charity and for your work there. And thanks very much for taking the time to be on the show. How can people keep in touch with you and follow your work? Okay, so I am uh, very active on social media. My Twitter account is at Shafi Ahmed 5. Please follow me and share stories. I'm on Facebook. I contribute on Facebook. So Shafi Ahmed on Facebook, Instagram, Shafi Ahmed 01. And I'm on LinkedIn. There you have it, Dr. Shafi Ahmed of St. Bart's Hospital in London. He's on the Faculty of Medicine at Singularity University. He's the founder of Virtual Medics and Medical Realities and much more. You can find all the links to what we discussed on the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 19. Also, if you'll be in London this June, you can see Dr. Ahmed speak at the Health Tech X Europe event taking place on June 20th. Find out more by visiting healthtechxeurope.com. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check out our next episode, which you definitely won't want to miss. Dr. Daniel Kraft of Singularity University and founder of Exponential Medicine is with us for episode 20. Click to subscribe in your podcast app, and I'd really appreciate it if you can rate our show on iTunes. If you need some help on how to do that, please visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash support. That's all for now, and until next time, keep on innovating. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible.com. Audible is offering a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Again, that's digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free for your free audiobook.